Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Before we get started today, uh, I just want to take a second to plug my weekly newsletter. It's called Friendship Friday. It's a revamped version of my previous newsletter, and I appreciate the positive feedback that I've received so far on it. Uh, I really hope it's something that people will connect with and find useful. There are a couple reasons that I decided to do this newsletter, and the first is that I've found that making and keeping friends is one of the great challenges of adult life. Uh, Personally, I'd like to get better at connecting and staying connected to the people that I care about. Um, And so this letter sort of serves as my opportunity to test out some new ideas and reflect on what I've tried and learned. So the second thing is that there's uh, a lot of people who talk about the psychology of things that people want, such as happiness, success, love, that sort of stuff. But there's relatively little dedicated to what's really one of the most important areas of our lives, the plain old friendships uh, that populate our everyday existence. You know, so uh, adult friendships are hard, and I think we just need all the help that we can get. And, uh, you know, so if, if, if you happen to know anyone who is a shitty friend and could maybe use some pointers, please consider signing them up for this newsletter against their will. So my guest today is someone that I've been looking forward to having on for quite a while now. He was one of the first names that came to my mind when I decided to start this podcast. And uh, that was because several years ago, I heard him give a talk at Harvard about what was essentially his life story the personal side of his intellectual journey, if you will. This was part of a series that he started at NYU, where uh, him and some colleagues get different faculty members to come in and share about their personal stories. And whenever he goes to a university of a talk, he in fact came to Oxford a few weeks ago, and that's where we connected, uh, he gives an additional talk about uh, this personal narrative. So the talk series at NYU is called Growing Up in Science, And this strikes me as an interesting name uh, because not only does it describe people's careers uh, in this general sort of way, but it really is appropriate to describe my guest story specifically. Uh, Most of us separate the process of growing up and the process of developing in our career. But one of the things that's interesting about him is that he was fast-tracked from an early age. He graduated from college at 14, from PhD at 17, and was on to his second postdoc by the time he was 24. And so we talk a lot about having to learn basic stuff about being a human in society while trying to relate to other humans. And, uh, you know, doing that while also trying to get some traction as a scientist. Which, uh, you know, interestingly, he sort of failed to do until an age that's more within the usual realm of expectation. So anyway, we, we get into all that, and I hit him with some more speculatively analytic questions than is usual for this show, uh, but that's mostly because I had just heard an hour-long discourse on his version of his entire life story, so I was uh, keen to poke him about it in a few places. It's really an enjoyable chat, and it's, it's my first recording of a live conversation as opposed to one that's recorded remotely. So the, the audio quality isn't optimal. Please forgive that. Uh, I hope to get it fixed up better in the future. And uh, as always, if, if you have any feedback or are enjoying the show uh, or have any ideas about how I can improve, 
I would I would sincerely love to hear from you. You can email me at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com. Uh, so a bit more about my guest bio before we get started. He is an associate professor of neuroscience and psychology at NYU. He is Chinese-Dutch and grew up in the Netherlands, taking his PhD in physics from Groningen University. He did his first postdoc with Christoph Koch, Caltech, and his second with Alex Puget at Rochester. Um, the first one didn't go so well, the second one did. You can find out more about Growing Up in Science at growingupinscience.com. Uh, he is also the co-founder of the Rural China Education Foundation. Please welcome Wei Ji Ma. So let's get into it here. Uh, Weiji, thank you for taking the time to talk today. I just heard your um, talk that you gave at Oxford here. And uh, I've actually been looking forward to talk to you uh, on the show from the very beginning when I started it because I heard you give uh, your scientific narrative, your, your personal journey um, through science a couple of years ago. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think everyone really enjoys it when they hear that. And um, I was like, wow, I really think that what this guy is doing is important. And he is making moves to, uh, you know, uh, share his story and to give other people a platform to share his story. And so I'm looking forward to getting into that a little bit more today. So thanks for talking. Thank you, Cody. I'm really happy to be here. It's, uh, it's really important what you're doing. And I'm glad that uh, I can help with any efforts that share people's, scientists' personal stories. Yep. So um, I guess the first thing that I want to sort of get into is, um, can you share a little bit about the mo- what, what is Growing Up in Science, which is your um, you know, sort of organization or, or whatever you want to call it uh, that you uh, do this with and uh, why you started that? Yeah, it's a, it, the Growing Up in Science is a, is a mentorship st- series where we uh, have a speaker once a, week, once a month uh, at NYU and... Uh, they are usually faculty members, but sometimes we also have PhDs who left academia. Uh, we've been uh, keeping this going since 2014. That's when uh, I started this series with uh, my colleague, uh, Christina Alberini, uh, who is a, a neuroscientist uh, at NYU. Uh, the reason that we started this was because we realized that there's a great need for talking about uh, personal stories in uh, science. So we, we know the science, but we rarely know the scientists. And everybody has an interesting life story, and it's rarely a straight story uh, towards success, uh, even if you look at the most accomplished scientists in the field. So there are lots of twists and turns in the stories. There are detours, there are struggles, there are failures. And we thought it would really be uh, an important component of mentoring younger scientists to talk openly about uh, all of those things. Uh, not only so that you can more humanize uh, the professors, uh, which is an, a big issue because very often uh, trainees lo- look up to professors way more than, than is healthy, uh, but also in order to get conversations started uh, about struggles that we all share and that we can help each other with. Um, so you uh, just... I just heard your entire life story for an hour and and the people listening to the show won't necessarily have heard that. Uh, But I want to go through and touch on a few things uh, uh, and and just sort of dig into them a little bit more. So one thing that's very unique about your story is that um, you were fast-tracked to uh, this like insane extent, right? So let me see if I, I, I got this. It was 
at 14, uh, that's when you started college. That's right. Um, this was in the Netherlands. Um, and uh, then it was 18 that you started your PhD? 17, actually. 17? Yeah. And then your postdoc at 22? That's right. Um, and then you finished that first postdoc, and then you started your second postdoc at 24, 25? That's right, 24, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I'm interested uh, uh, that you kind of alluded to, but you didn't really go into, when did you start having friends? Yeah, right because you know like usually uh you know sort of like through it like a, like the normal life path you yeah. have your peers and but you didn't have your peers yeah. so when did you start <laughs> really connecting yeah. with the social it's, it's a great question like so the um, when i skipped my grades in primary school and at what uh, at that time it seemed really necessary because right because it, it, it was, this was, it was an just, elementary school that's right. that you started doing this so you were never at any point that's right with your peers yeah so i never felt uh connected to my classmates the same way that anybody else would yeah. uh, and uh, it's always been a, a bit of an issue right I always felt this need to belong that was not completely satisfied um, by um, the people I spent um, I was in school with um, I, I somehow found ways to deal with it by also doing a lo lot of extracurricular activities so I joined organizations where I would hang out more with my with uh, you know, kids my own age um, but uh, I, I've never really had like long lasting friendships that date back many years that uh, that some people have. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think that uh, has not just to do with my personality, but also with these, these, these particular circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel like that you, uh, I mean, so, so one of the strategies that it seems like you employed was joining the organizations, yeah. but were there things about just relating to other humans in this sort of casual way right the yeah. friendship uh that you had to like learn about yes. in a sense yes is there anything that stands out in your mind in terms of like oh at first i didn't realize x and then when i started doing x i i became much better just relating casually to other humans yeah i think that uh, at least until i was about 25 i just had a very poor understanding of of social situations Which could also be because you were a trained physicist yeah that's that's definitely also a strong predictor absolutely <laughs> um so everything probably was uh, like a the perfect storm um but uh, yeah it's like uh, nothing stands out in particular but there are just uh, lots of small awkward moments that uh, that i recall that maybe many people go through but i still think that most people they reach a level of emotional maturity before i did um and um, I think that uh, that to a large extent has to do with what you're saying that I which was not be able to build up those skills uh, earlier in life. Yeah. Um. So another thing that I want to touch on when you were younger is that your initial interests were not necessarily in mathematics, which is what your career is developed into, but in classics, right? Yeah. And so I'm wondering. Um, did that just drop out once you um, sort of like, well, I'm going to do physics now? Or is that continued in some minor way or maybe even just the mindset of what you get studying classics? Yeah. Did that play out for you at all? Yeah, so those interests were towards the end of high school where uh, I actually uh, loved Latin and Latin translation and I participated even in a Latin translation con contest. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, which took me to Italy. Oh, you know which other famous mathematician um, was actually way more interested in ancient language transition when they uh, George Boole okay. George Boole before uh, he invented you know Boolean algebra and all that shit 
was uh, like that. He he actually had his first. He, this is sort of uh, a prodigy, like you know. So he actually had his first literary feud when he was 14 years old wow. because someone accused uh, uh, him of of plagiarizing this uh, ancient Greek poem that he translated because they're like, well, there's just no fucking way that this 14 year old kid punk can, <laughs> can like do a sympathetic translation. Wow. Um, uh, but anyway, so you're in good you're in good company. Well, I'm not, that, not but... nearly at that level, but uh, I really liked uh, Latin and. Uh, to the point that after I graduated from high school, I kept in touch with my uh, Latin teacher and I would occasionally uh, go to his home and discuss translations with him. Um, but uh, through college, it, it sort of fizzled and yeah, I haven't done anything with it since. Um, do you, I mean, do you ever pick up a book from time to time and, and like leaf through it and be like, mm, Virgil, good shit? <laughs> I wish I, I did. I don't. Yeah. Um, okay, so the other thing, one of the things that is the, the funniest sort of recurring theme in your, in your narrative is just your prodigious propensity for procrastination. Yes. And um, by your, uh, uh, by one total, you, you spent somewhere between 4,000 and 10,000 hours playing online chess. That's right, yeah. Um, during your PhD and... Um, that sort of stuff so what was there a particular moment where you looked in the mirror and said okay this is a problem i need to figure out what i'm going to do about this was there was there a single moment where that happened for you um i can do better than that those moments occur periodically <laughs> there's still moments like and then I, I was looking at a mirror about 20 minutes ago <laughs> in the and, bathroom and then i quit for a little bit yeah. and then i get tempted again a couple months later so right, right even True nowadays behavior yeah relapses. it's true absolutely absolutely relapses um and uh like i really in, when i restart uh, i really think oh this is just going to be for fun just to re- relax a little bit play play for fun a couple of games but then inevitably it turns into days and days of playing and nights and nights of playing uh, and it's just not very healthy yeah, yeah. so that, so that, so you um maybe the height of that was during your first postdoc in la right uh i'm not sure if that was the height of it it was it's pretty much been a constant throughout my career okay um but there was a transition point where so uh you uh, talked about how during PhD and first postdoc you got very little done like, that's right. like objectively yeah. you just didn't get much done that's right and um, then during your second postdoc you started to get shit done yes yes and um, was there a change in how you were managing that uh, you know addiction to online yeah. chess yeah, was so there a specific change that you made or was it purely just, okay, now I'm doing something that clicks well with my thing. And so even though I've got this, you know, thing that's happening on the side, and I'm still distracted by this. I can also just be productive because it aligns with my intrinsic yeah, motivation. I, I think it's more the latter, but I, I should definitely give my uh, postdoc advisor at the time credit, Alex Bouget, yeah. who also pretty much told me that if you don't get your act together, you're not going to make it in science. And he was very much right about that. And I think I needed uh, sort of a warning signal like that. Um, and I hadn't really gotten that before. I had mostly beca- between pe- um, working with people who were much more, uh, much less on top of what I was doing. So let me speculate wildly for sure. uh, a moment yeah. here. So there's... Um, 
four different things that popped into my head. One, so so Alex Puget really made a difference for you, helped you get you on track by sitting down and be like, so you, you've been here for three months. What the fuck have you been up to? Yeah. Nothing. Let's, you need to do something. Yeah. About that. yeah. Christoph Koch did not do that. He uh, has a lot of shit going on. Um, and he's a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, loosey goosey in terms of uh, management style. Uh, and he, therefore, it was at the end of two years that he asked you what you've been up to, and the answer was not all that much. Um, and then, if you go back to your childhood, you talked a lot about how your mother was the one who pushed you um, to uh, uh, get uh, your, you know, grades and stuff um, uh, early on in your career. But then there's this. Uh, so clearly, the the manager that you have um, uh, makes a big difference in your outcomes. But then there's this other thing here where you talk about how much better suited you are to being a PI than a postdoc or yeah. grad student because now you are the manager. Yeah. So how do you make sense of early on in your career, you are so basically just deterministically dependent on the person who was above you. And then once you were the top node, then it, 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 like, it all kind of worked yeah. out. So what, what do you make of that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah, so many people say that being a postdoc is sort of the best stage of their career because uh, they're more independent than a grad student but uh, still don't have the uh, responsibilities of a PI. And even when I was a postdoc, I didn't feel that way. I already could see that if I, if I managed to make it to PI level, then I would be much happier because I could set the agenda. And I think this appeals to my organizational or managerial, managerial tendencies. Yeah. Uh, I just like to have my fingers in many pots and uh, manage people and um, make sure that they succeed. And uh, I, I think when, I, when it came to that point, um, uh, those were factors that really motivated me to, to do good work. Um, and uh, I, I didn't really um, have any more that somebody was telling me what to do and then I, I had, found way, had to find ways to escape from that. Yeah. So what is one thing that you like about managing people or, or what is one thing that you think maybe you do well um, and if you could be like specific about what yeah. that looks like? Um, I think that I'm pretty good at listening to my trainees hmm. uh, in terms of uh, what they need at the particular moment. Yeah. So if they need a high level conversation uh, and that's a different kind of meeting than if they need, if they're stuck with some technicalities in their code. And I try to adjust accordingly. Yeah. So I try to provide sort of a customized um, help a as needed. Um, I also really try to create a, a socially warm atmosphere in the lab. Hmm. So I, I, I select What's one strategy that you yeah like best practices yeah so one part is that's very difficult to do it's really hard and it starts at the door it starts when you admit yeah. people you have to find people who are not just excellent scientists but who also have a sense of community who are kind and generous and like to hang out socially with each other. You also have to get the sense that the PI cares exactly, about them, and right? I participate. They always are going to set the tone. Yeah, and I participate in all the social activities. In many cases, I organize them. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, we do a lot of things with the lab outside of work. How and, big is your lab? Uh, it has varied. It's uh, it was at one point thirteen people. Now it's around 
uh, 10, but I'd like uh, to stabilize actually a little bit lower, seven to eight people. Right. Um, so but we do a lot of things. So you have a little bigger lab, even though you benefited when yeah. you were a graduate or a postdoc from being in a smaller lab. Yeah, th- and, but there is a difference. Uh, the, my second postdoc lab was a purely theoretical lab. Yeah. And this is a, a 50% experimental, 50% mm-hmm. theoretical lab, okay. and which makes it possible to have a little bit uh, of a bigger lab because experiments just um, sometimes just take a lot of time to, to run and that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that doesn't require as much uh, mentorship at that stage. Um, and But yeah, like we... we and do board games together and karaoke and escape rooms and, <laughs> and lots of dinners um, and I think by and large my, people who work in my lab are pretty happy and that's yeah. really really important to me now one thing I don't do very well is uh, sometimes um, manage um, frictions within the lab that haven't occurred recently but they have, have occurred in the past yeah. and I was a bit too late to recognize them and to act upon them did, did it negatively affect someone's career or was it just a temporary sort of like, ah, things weren't as, uh, you know, amicable as they could be? Yeah, so um, I think in some cases it had a, a temporary negative impact, um, but I am now on good terms with pretty much everybody who's uh, worked in my lab uh, and um, including... Uh, some of the people who were involved in some of the frictions in, in the past. Right. So I think we managed to work it out, but I should have um, been much more aware of what was going on earlier. I don't want you to have to go into inappropriate personal detail about anything, but yeah. is there is there anything that you can say about the setup that brought about whatever you're referring to and maybe what you learned, like, okay, well, so now I have this in place which allows me to, you know, have a warning flag if something's yeah. going wrong. Yeah, so one case actually involved uh, one postdoc and myself. And this postdoc had a background that uh, looked really good on paper. Um, it was applied math. Um, but it turns out that um, uh, he uh, was uh, more on the side where he was happy to solve math problems rather than really care about the brain. Yeah. And I had been too late in recognizing that. And uh, the moment that I uh, actually had that discussion with him, he felt very offended because at that point he had been in the year, in lab already for uh, a year and a half or so and uh, felt that he was doing very well every yeah. measure. So that blew up and that was largely my fault. Uh, in another case was that because you delivered the feedback in too blunt of a way or didn't frame it right or that might have been part of it that might have been part of it but also um, I think it was a fundamental mismatch of expectations that I became aware of too late okay Um, and in the second case it it involved a, a conflict between a graduate student and a postdoc where the postdoc joined the project later and uh, the first thing that I asked him to do was to uh, replicate some of the results the graduate student had gotten and that went on for a little bit too long which made the postdoc feel subordinate to the graduate student which is completely understandable at the same time we hadn't worked out an independent project for the postdoc yet so the postdoc ended up pretty frustrated even thinking of leaving the lab at the same time, the grad student uh, noticed that the postdoc wasn't really working on the, project, the joint project uh, and got very frustrated with the postdoc. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's something that I should have both designed better and intervened in earlier. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's another thing that um, stood out to me, which I really loved uh, mm. in your story, which is that uh, I think this is because you experienced so much uh, s academic success so young and you always were this sort of cut above, uh, you know, superstar in a way um, that it doesn't feel like it occurs to you uh, that you might not be able to do something, like you might not be capable of it. And you mention it kind of offhand at different points in the story um, where it's like, well, uh, you know, then I was like, well, I thought about running and being in politics. And um, you mentioned, well, it's like, you know, acting seems kind of fun. And you have absolutely no evidence that you would or would not be a good act actor, but you said it in a way that's like you know I could probably pull that shit off if I really <laughs> wanted to, um, which I think which I yeah. think is 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 great and I I think I think it's it's funny and it's it's you know one of those quirks, um, but I also think it, it's potentially a really positive, um, you know, personality trait and I think it's played out in your career because. Um, you know, you're like, well, physics isn't working out. So what if I just did yeah. you know, psychology? Yeah, so there, there's a bit of that. So I think that um, I, uh, I probably because of the way I grew up and also my physicist arrogance and my personality, I don't know exactly what it is. I have always had this happy-go-lucky mentality that everything is going to work out. Um, but I should also say that the, the first moment that you mentioned about going into the Dutch politics, that was also a moment where... I was um, really naive about my own limitations and yeah. I hope that's gotten a little bit better since um, and uh, I think that uh, the theater part uh, that was sort of a, a more <laughs> or less a joke so I've actually I know I've I'm actually, saying uh, it and it sounds no, like no, I'm no, accusing no, you no no no, no, no. It's, I'm glad that you're but I think you it's a, it's a uh, yeah. it does like you know reading between the lines of some of the stuff that you say and maybe going you know too far in that but it does uh, like seem like so something that yeah, characterizes so your personality uh, that part I, I never actually felt that I would actually be a good actor but I would really enjoy that kind of yeah. art like if, if I don't, I'm not an artistic person I don't play music yeah, I don't paint yeah. but I've tried theater games and I, I really like those so that, that, that was sort of the basis for that remark but yeah more broadly I think that um growing up with these high expectations and, and these high uh, not necessarily high expectations but high external um, like uh, esteem like the, the kind of uh, pedestal that people put you on um, is, uh, is it feels good I'm not going to deny that that it's, it, it really feels like uh, the attention feels good especially when I was, was much younger yeah. um, but at the same time it can be quite toxic in the sense that you lose any realistic sight of uh, what you can do and cannot do yeah um and um it's interesting that you say that maybe it worked out as a positive that you sort of an optimism bias right that you just do things that otherwise uh, like a saner person would not have tried yeah i don't i don't think that those are necessarily this like the things that it occurred to you, and I, you know, maybe you can speak a little bit more about the thought process, but the, you know, like, well, well I'm just going to make a massive jump because it's like, well, sure, sure, you sure. know, uh, like, I think, I think other people would be more limited in what it occurs to them to initially, um, uh, you know, suppose like as in their set of possible yeah. next steps, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I, I think that's possible. 
Um, although lots of course, of course, lots of people switch from physics to other fields. Right. Um, and in many cases, there's uh, there's a reason to believe that they will be able to do so successfully, right? Because they bring some quantitative skills right. into their new field. So it, it's not entirely without basis in general. But uh, yeah, definitely up to my first postdoc, I, I was pretty naive about um, like uh, what I could really do. Yeah. So um, I want to talk a little bit about that first postdoc. So you just finished your PhD in physics. Yeah. Um, and you tell this uh, great uh, you know story where it's you're you were not quite there in terms of what you've done to get your PhD. Yeah but your uh, supervisor allowed you to uh, finish on the condition that you agreed not to become a professional physicist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, was, it wasn't uh, like a hard condition, but it was sort of a mutual <laughs> was, understanding was, yeah. that if like, We'll I, let you go as long as yeah. you know. <laughs> you stay out of this field, that's right. So what I want to talk about specifically is, so you did your first postdoc with Christoph Koch, yeah. um, who's interested in, presumably, uh, he's also in physics backgrounds, and um, presumably interested in your physics background and um, uh, all that sort of stuff. So how did you find out about him and then how did you reach out to him? Yeah, um, this was part of a US tour that I was making shortly after I got my PhD. So this was the fall of 2001. And I had some uh, one year grant from the Dutch government. So that made it a little bit easier to get access to labs. And I considered a whole lot of places and a very wide diversity of, um, of topics. Uh, but then... Um, I even had a great visit to MIT with uh, Nancy Kenwisher, but mm. before I deciding that uh, the, the interest didn't overlap uh, sufficiently, uh, we both decided. And um, then in um, at Caltech, it seems like it was a good match on paper because um, uh, of his physicist background and because I was really interested in consciousness. So I hadn't lost my illusions of grandeur at that time. So if I wasn't going to solve the mysteries of the universe, I was going to solve the mysteries of consciousness. Right. And the internal universe. That's right. That's right. Um, so uh, I, I uh, after shopping around, I saw that that would uh, be the best place for me. Yeah. Um, and. Probably. Wait, but so how did, was was that diff? Was I mean, so I know he's huge now in terms yeah. of um, Alan uh, right. Brain Institute and all sorts of stuff. Was he a, an approachable figure back then? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was very, very busy. Uh, he ran a big lab. He was traveling a lot. Did um, he still have a big like personality, like the way he dressed? Oh yes, and oh yes, yes. The the primary colors. Because like the yeah, lab, when you the, see when you see him in public, yeah. you get to like he he wears these the, the things. Vests, yeah. With, uh, with this, primary uh, colors that is a good uh, and then the labs lab walls were painted in primary colors oh that's hilarious um, you realize that we don't see a lot of those in, in, uh, in scientists yeah, dress that's right, right that's right and then um, yeah, he, I attended some of his lectures and they were extremely um, like right. captivating uh, so yeah Christopher has always been a, a sort of larger than life figure and did, so it, did he do you feel like he influenced you even though you didn't do a lot of work um uh, like you know, publish papers with him. Yeah. Uh, was was being around? Did you sort of suck some of that up by osmosis, or no? Yeah. So, I think that um, uh, one one thing in my in my art, Christoph, is that he is not afraid to attack really really big questions, right? So you can, you can think what you want about uh, theories of consciousness, but uh, to actually study that scientifically is a big challenge. Uh, he also is really good at. Uh, uh, 
uh, he, he, he does a lot of work in terms of communicating science to uh, big audiences, right? He uh, wrote a Quest for Consciousness, which is a pu public book. He gave which is a public part memoir. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and talks a lot about um, his religious he, background. Yeah, and yeah, sort of stuff. yeah, and um, uh, public lectures, and I, I also enjoy those things. I think I think those are very important, um, and um, yeah, uh, it, it's it's I, I would say that my scientific direction has been more shaped by Alex Puget than by Christoph, but um, uh, like. Uh, mismatch in, in mentorship styles aside I think um, overall uh, I had a good time in his lab yeah um, so let's jump to the second post on yeah. now so you're um, uh, about well, you started this in your mid-20s you're the second post yeah so it was 2004 so I was 25 yeah. okay wait so first of all first of all there's something that sort of occurred to me yeah. about this which is that so you uh, you know, had this insane trajectory where you finished your PhD by the time most people, or so you started your PhD by the time most people are finishing their undergraduate, or starting their undergraduate, sorry. Um, yeah. But the, uh, and then, you know, you're doing a postdoc and you're in your second postdoc, uh, which where you really started to get traction, you know, mid 20s. That's right. Which is, in fact, pretty much the usual time that people start to get traction in science. Yeah. So, in a sense, you, like in ter terms of production, like pragmatism, you actually weren't uh, uh, advanced in terms of your age at all. Yeah. You were at pretty much what is the normal uh, state. Yeah, yeah, what I, do you make of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I gained some years, I lost some years. It was a net wash. <laughs> I had an interesting trajectory on the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think part of it is actually just um, like... It, uh, social and intellectual maturity which yeah. I didn't have until around that time and it's really important of course if you want to say, set up your own research program and uh, I uh, uh, I think it was a good coincidence that I, I reached that point around the time that I was also in Alex's lab so that yeah. um, it came to fruition relatively uh, quickly um, but I won't deny that I have had a lot of luck along the way right what if I hadn't met Alex then yeah. Uh, based on my record, I would probably have had a really hard time finding a postdoc. He really took a chance on me. So how can you? How did you meet Alex again? Yeah, so he gave a talk at Caltech, and I was a postdoc who was working on a related topic with Christoph. So then uh, we met and just ch chatted about work, and uh, yeah, I was really impressed by his approach uh, uh, to his science, especially because um, he was so much more hands on and like uh, thinking about the issues. Uh, in a very active way as opposed yeah. to uh, like a very high level way and um, yeah I think that was a good conversation that we met again at uh, the vision science conference uh, later in 2004 and we hashed out some ideas and I think around that time I also uh, got the offer yeah um, and so you talked about how there was that meeting with Alex where he was like okay what have you been up to and you didn't have anything to report yeah. what was the first thing that happened after that uh, yeah I'm, I'm not so sure I, it could be that I just um, uh, yeah I, I did change something I did I, was I did. it a wake up call in retrospect or was it you actually were like okay no this is 
I like I need to get serious. Right so now. first of all, it was a bit of a shock because no, no mentor had been saying that to me before, even yeah. though I very much deserved that. So uh, yes, it was a bit of a wake up call at the moment, and I did change my ways to to some extent. So I, I think I. Did you take it well? You know, you were talking about yeah, your that, uh, confrontation with the postdoc. No, not in t- not not initially. Like yeah. I, I, I thought it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was. Um, like I, 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 I didn't want to blame myself. I didn't want to s- seek fault in myself. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was also clear that that he was right. So uh, I think I did come to terms with that, and um, I did start it in putting more time it's not that magically all the issues went away right i still uh, procrastinate I, I started this rule at china education foundation during my second postdoc we, uh, i wouldn't call that an issue but it's sort of a very time-consuming right. side interest and i'm familiar with those believe it or not <laughs> uh, but then um, uh, yeah i think in the end it, it ended up being a decent balance still not uh the, the kind of postdoc that people these days say that you need to have uh, to be successful, which is probably much more work-focused, more exclusively work-focused. Um, but this was also a different era. This was 2004 to 2008. Yeah. So how do you advise your students who have side interests? Yeah. Do, do you have uh, students who... You know, you've started nonprofits yeah. and you know talk series and that sort of stuff. Do you find that your students also have similar outside interests, and how do you advise them on that? Or do you find that they're pretty pretty focused, pretty straight and narrow? And uh, no, so students who join my lab probably because they know a bit about my own background, they they tend to have lots of side interests. So one student of mine. Uh, is aspiring to be a documentary filmmaker by the side. Really? Uh, another is starting, um, is now the president of the Scientist Action Advocacy Network. Um, uh, 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 and, uh, and and, and ma- many lo- do outreach. Um, so I, I strongly encourage those things. I often participate in the, the, the activities. And I think it's just uh, really important to keep that up. So I don't think it's at, in any way at the cost of their scientific work. So they're still incredibly good. And um, I think that uh, it is very well possible to balance those things as long as you're also in a healthy work and mentorship environment, right? So I I do try to keep projects well on track, maybe in in the style of Alex. uh, And my students are also much better than I was as a trainee. Um, Sometimes I joke that I would never have hired my my, my past self. so they managed to balance these things and uh, and still uh, get their shit done. Yeah. So what do you make of that last statement, which I know is a little bit tongue in cheek or whatever, but it's also yeah. true, right? Yeah. Because you wouldn't, I, I don't yeah. think you would have been successful if you were yeah. pulling the kind of shit that you were doing yeah. back in the day today, yeah. right? Because there'd be someone yeah. else who had gotten way more done at a comparable, right? Because yeah. they, they focus. So what, do you think that we are missing out on people like yourself who would have uh, a different point of view and just a different style of doing yeah. things yeah are we missing out on those people by being yeah. really highly optimized for this one version Th- that is entirely possible and i think it has to do with risk tolerance right so some some pis might be willing to to take a chance on on uh postdocs the way that alex took a chance on me um, but there's just a little bit uh, less room for that, a, li- or a little bit less need for that. So if you're a young PI 
uh, you also have your own goals to meet and uh, it's very risky to hire somebody like I was myself uh, at the same time uh, it's clear that the candidate has uh, managed to balance work and extracurriculars uh, in the past then it's not necessarily a negative right it's not necessarily a risk that risk goes away uh, so I, I would say that uh, it, it becomes a problem when there's any indication that the extracurriculars have hurt the scientific work. And maybe as a, as a PI myself, um, I, I, yes, yeah, so as, as I was saying, I was, I'm very tolerant of people doing society-related uh, work, but I do pay a lot of attention to the fact that it, um, it hasn't really affected anything else. And, and my younger self was different in that way, in that yeah. everything else I did did affect my yeah. uh, science. So, um, do you have, are you cognizant of the things that you look for in collaborators then? Yeah. Because, you know, you're like, well, you know, here's what I'm good at. And I think uh, you're, you're pretty self-aware about, you know, what you're good at and what you're not, what your strengths and weaknesses are. Do you explicitly look for people who are going to balance those out? You mean in terms of trainees or equal level really? collaborators? Yeah, I'm thinking more in terms of equal level, but you know, in, in terms of any choices that you make people to, to look with. Uh, but, but 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 I, I guess I'm thinking kind of at, at a you know more pure. Yeah, so I I think that um, in terms of my trainees, they are by and large very aware of the kind of lab that they're joining, uh, with a, a PI who. Uh, and has a lot of weaknesses and is also quite open about those weaknesses uh, and um, that hopefully will help them to make an informed decision when to join the lab and in terms of collaborators uh, yeah I have, I have a tendency to just accept collaborations that seem interesting so I ended up with a way too long list of of collaborations yeah. uh, and sooner or later my collaborators do find out that I procrastinate <laughs> and that I uh, don't, don't like reading um, uh. but somehow um like I'm also uh, pretty persistent, so I do want to conclude, uh, and I have st high standards for my, my own work. So I do conclude, you know, collaborate. I do try to close collaborations in a satisfactory way. So, so one thing that I remember you mentioned a couple of years ago when I first saw you was yeah. that you had this massive Excel spreadsheet yep. on which you had every ongoing project. Now is yep. how you organized. Yep. When we talked recently you said you don't do that as much anymore what are your current organization methods that you use oh uh, so i still have that spreadsheet you still use that uh, yeah so I what does that look like what are the what are the columns how often do you update <laughs> it what is the i, could, I could show it to you but that would not come across <laughs> in the podcast uh, but yeah it, it's pretty much a list of uh, projects and people and status a status of the project mm -hmm. and i how many projects are on there um between 40 and 50 still yeah and around it's always in that neighborhood yes and uh, i i really try to uh, bring that number down because it's just unmanageable. But failed. And, well, in, in the last two years, <laughs> I've uh, managed to decline most requests for new collaborations. Okay. Uh, so it's been a, a, a two years of mostly closing projects. So the list was even longer okay. uh, before. And I think uh, many projects that, st that are still on the list, they're in sort of final stages. So they might get off the list um, pretty soon. Um, so what does that get you the other strategies that you tried is not uh, keeping that list yeah I can just remember everything that I'm working on and remind myself that I really shouldn't take up anything more yeah. um, 
And uh, like I think many scientists have this tendency to be very excited about the collaboration in the beginning, and then when it times to comes time to actually do the work and finish it up, then uh, enthusiasm de declines. Mm -hmm. Uh, so part of that is also happening with me. Also, I have a lot of people who um, uh, are looking for a particular kind of modeling and I, I, that's relatively the work for me because I've done that type of modeling before. Yeah. So I joined that collaboration. Um, but of course, everything adds up. So I, I try to uh, say no to that more often. But saying no is very hard to me. Um, now, How often do you update the list? Um, every one to two months, I would say. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's it's not like this is open on your desktop. No, so there, there, every day, and you're like, great, I did the method section for no, this. No, it's, it's for, for that, I do try to use Trello. Uh, so you have uh, uh, to do, doing, and done columns. What's what's Trello? So, so it's it's this it's this um, task management software online. It's a, it's a website. And uh, you just can drag the individual tasks from one column to the other. It feels very satisfying when you can do that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I tried that, start, started using that recently. And it does help to some extent sort of as, as a continuous reminder. Um, if it has made me more efficient, I don't know. Um, I think that uh, I'm also really lucky that uh, some of the projects that uh, I'm doing are really carried by my students and postdocs, so they, yeah. I, I have to do relatively little on them. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, with m my level of orientation to detail, it, it sometimes doesn't feel good to not be very, very involved with the details. So there's one last thing that I uh, want to talk about here, and yeah. this is uh, also the way that you sort of ended your talk in summary, which is about imposter syndrome. And so uh, I'm interested to hear what your the, like state of imposter syndrome um, sort of summary is, right? Because um, I'm wondering if you think, so, so today in, in the room, you know, there was what, you know, 30, 40 people there. You asked how many of you have, have heard of imposter syndrome or aware of this and felt it. And pretty much everyone, yeah. you know, um, assented to both those things. And so I think in my estimation, it's something that we're becoming increasingly aware of. Yep. Um, I don't think there's anyone who is not aware of it at this point because it's something that's so readily talked about. Yep. And it's also something that we're taking steps to address, right? You were talking yep. about your story. I'm doing this podcast. Everyone is, is, is starting to realize that we're all on the same page here and we need some strategies to, um, to deal with it. So the first question I have is, what is your do you think that norms around it are changing what is your state of imposter syndrome yeah so I, I think that's absolutely right i think people are becoming more aware and um there is a sense that um, we have to uh, strengthen uh, our communities to, to make it easier to discuss uh, struggles um, there's some other initiatives that are sort of touching upon this, like CV of failures and yeah. uh, lab manuals. Do you have a CV of failures? No, because I think that uh, tells only a tiny fraction of the story. I'm really interested in the story yeah. behind the person. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure as a podcast maker you can relate to that. So it's, it's not really about a list of the failed grants. It's really about um, like the, what you felt, what your intentions, your motivations were at any, at any point. Uh, and and it's you cannot really get that without getting somebody to tell their life story holistically um, and uh, I think that um, more schools have mentorship oh, by the programs. way yeah that is the humanities part of you because you Absolutely. started off your, yeah. your 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 talk yeah. saying like well this is going to be more like the way people conceptualize data 
in the humanities, right? Which yeah. is this holistic, interpretive, yeah. narrative-based thing. He didn't drop the classics entirely. That's where that same inclination comes from, is that it's this a deep understanding of the role of narrative and what you can and cannot get from yeah. structuring data. Because at the end of the day, yeah, it's, it's a data problem, right? Yeah. Like a, uh, the CV of failures yeah. is a way of organizing data, and yeah. you are saying that is insufficient for yeah. the task yeah. that we're doing here, but we need is something narrative. Yeah. That's where you get the, the pick up the, the the same part of you that love classics. <laughs> anyway, yeah, maybe, sorry. Maybe, well, maybe there's but... a connection there. Yeah, actually, uh, now that you mentioned that, I, I think that um, the appreciation for the ways that people think in humanities has has um, uh, I've touched on in many at many places over the years. So one place actually is through these nonprofit organizations that work in rural China, because one tendency in education is always to use quantitative metrics mm-hmm. to. Uh, to uh, evaluate st- student and teacher success, yeah. but working with that organization made me fully realize that uh, you can't do that. It's, it doesn't tell the story. It doesn't tell the story of somebody's professional development, how a rural teacher can grow from uh, somebody who just is part of the system to an educational innovator with her own ideas. Yeah. And that's something that you have to um, record by talking to people and really trying to understand uh, their their full story. More ethnographic methods, sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, then. Okay. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So back coming to back to the topic, <laughs> I I think that uh, there are more and more programs and institutions that uh, have mentorship um, seminars and series. I think that's really good. Uh, but uh, relating to the pro- point of narrative, sometimes it's, it tends to be a little bit more. Uh, to sort of instrumental, like what are the things that I have to do in order to be success- successful. Right. And I think that what is still very much missing is uh, this discourse on uh, your uh, your inner world. And uh, I think that's something that scientists are not used to talking about. They probably, some might even think that it's irrelevant to their science, that you can do science in a, uh, in a world that is free of uh, values and social issues and personal struggles. And we all know in our hearts of hearts that it's that is not the case. Uh, so it's just um, very rewarding to me to see that um, uh, that many institutions have taken up something like growing up in science and have managed to open up that conversation, uh, even among trainees themselves. Faculty don't necessarily have to be involved in that. Uh, of course, it's great if they are. Um, but I, I think together we can really work to make academia Sort of a, a better and a healthier place to, to, to work in. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay, here's another interpretation of the story that you uh, laid out, which is that, uh, so you, you, uh, you know, are open about uh, um, imposter syndrome being something that you've struggled with personally. Yeah. And um, that it really didn't start to get better until you got your job at NYU, yeah. was it? Well, it started to get better before that, but it disappeared. But that, that was when, yeah. when it was. And, um, you know, by your own description, that was because of this external validation. Yeah. And I think maybe you'd be willing to admit that we don't want it to be a function of external validation. We want people to be able to in, understand their own intrinsic value yeah. and that they have the right to be here regardless yeah. of you know whether or not they have yeah. tenure, right? Yeah. Um, because if we're going to wait until that point, everyone's going to be miserable yes. until and relatively And many people later. might drop, off, uh, drop out in beforehand. So, yeah. so what strategies do you see um, uh, in other people's stories or in, yeah. in your mentees or, or anyone 
that are the best practices for dealing with those thoughts as they come Yeah, up. so I, I don't know if they're the best practices, but they, they seem sensible practices. So uh, one thing is, of course, to talk to each other about it, right? So to make it less taboo. If you can talk to your mentor about it, that's even better. If they are willing to t- share their struggles and their life stories with you, that can really... Uh, alleviate some of your own or make them come on this podcast so they can publicly declare everything that they're insecure (laughs) even better even better Uh, and then something that i always say is to be very aware that even most accomplished scientists they struggle and they make mistakes and they're very unsure about the things they say no no matter how polished the paper is or how how polished the talk is very often we have this tendency to uh, idolize certain scientists put them on a pedestal think that they're invincible infallible uh, demigods and I think that's that's not healthy I think we have to uh, collectively um, uh, get clarity that that's that that's a really a myth uh, and then um, uh, another thing is to some, some keep track of the things that you have actually accomplished sometimes progress is so slow in science that uh, you don't even notice your improvement anymore but if you look back right. uh, a year or two or if you mentor somebody who's more junior than you, you realize how, mu- how far you've actually come and how much you've learned. Yeah. So one, uh, one thing that I think is often overlooked in terms of this is that there is a, a factual incorrectness about imposter syndrome where it's not, it's it, like it is in some important ways simply not true um, in pretty much any case because what is factually the case is that you are good at what you're good at and you are bad at what you're bad at, and that's going to be to various levels. Everyone's going to have stuff that they excel at and stuff um, that they might not like as much or might not be as good at. And by virtue of being wherever you are, um, it is not a matter of um, uh, whether or not you are uh, this perfect like platonic conception of a scientist, but you simply have a profile of strength and weaknesses that is... It's just it's it just exists. It's a it's a it's a fact, and it's not about having no weaknesses and all perfect strengths. It's just about uh, accepting and recognizing what you are and trying to do the best you can to, to yeah. play with that. So I, I completely agree with that. So in fact, my my own example of um, imposter complex was um, working next to Jeff Beck, who as in my second postdoc, who is an incredible uh, applied mathematician by training and. He was he made a really successful transition to computational neuroscience, and I was measuring myself um, right. uh, against him as a reference point along the axis of mathematical ability, right. and uh, I was always going to lose that battle. At the same time, I really enjoy and I'm pretty decent at communicating uh, math to people who don't have a math background. Right. And that's also a really important skill. And you could even argue that in job interviews, it might be the more important skill. Yeah. And for me, what you're saying that uh, like ability is multidimensional, uh, success is multidimensional, uh, is something that came quite late. But it's really important to realize, um, uh, and it can sometimes maybe help you get rid of your imposter complex. The other thing is that you know it goes back to what you were saying about how there is no one single scientist template. Yeah. everyone's story is different yeah. yeah and by virtue of that i mean you just you just simply can't compare yourself to other people yeah. both i mean that in an emotional way that's where you know the trouble starts but also i mean you you just simply it is not objectively possible to do because there's too much different shit yes. going on uh, absolutely and the problem um comes 
because there is an asymmetry where we are comparing full knowledge of our own self and our own process with partial knowledge of someone else's process, which is their CV of successes, right? Yep. It, is, it is their high, we are comparing our everyday to their highlight reel. And the reason that there is always such a dramatic um, you know, discrepancy there is because this is, this is the best shit that they've ever done. That's what we're looking at in their case versus the mundane shit that we screw up on every day. Yeah, so there, right? there's that, but there's sometimes also that you compare yourself to your peers uh, around you. So you might be more aware of the mundane stuff, but then uh, you might... Uh, one thing that I've heard in one of these Scrub and Science sessions is that uh, a student was saying uh, maybe many trainees, they uh, build up this mythical super person out of individuals that they see around them. So, oh, you have to be good at math, you have to be good at writing, you have to... Uh, be really good at designing new experiments and uh, nobody has all of that but you I imagine that there is such a mythical person out there that you're then, then trying to compare yourself to and um, that's um, that's just uh, that can even strengthen these feelings yeah yeah, yeah no but I, I do think that um, because we're becoming more aware it's it's I mean I think it's it's quite recognized the prevalence um, I, I, I am hopeful that the norms around that are going to change and that uh, you know we'll have better tools for dealing with it and um, you know I think that we're as a society growing sensitive to all sorts of yeah. um, things like that that sort of were swept under the yeah. rug previously. I think there's two things to be aware of there so one thing is that uh, people from underrepresented minorities are more susceptible to uh, imposter complex that's that's yeah. uh, there's research on that and that uh, makes intuitive sense because these people have fewer role models and have a less uh, prior sense of belonging so and maybe there's some stereotypes that it w at work as well there so i think we have to be very aware of that of that that vulnerability and and yeah. and, and, and particularly try to address um uh, these groups uh, and the the second thing is that sometimes I hear that imposter complex motivates people to do better, but I don't agree with that. So I, I think that an objective assessment of your weaknesses and de uh, can drive a desire to uh, to improve on those weaknesses, but uh, imposter complex is more than that. Like you were saying, it's this subjective uh, um, perception of your own ability is very often incorrect, and that can hold you back in ways that... Uh, are sometimes uh, completely paralyzing, right? You could say, okay, I'm never going to make it. Let me, I'm not going to work at all anymore. Or I'm going to drop out. Uh, and that's a waste of, uh, primarily for the individual, but also for science. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's uh, fantastic. And I uh, totally agree with all that. And I'm glad that uh, you have made it one of your mini missions uh, to, to chip away at uh, all that sort of stuff. So thanks for taking the time to uh, talk here today and for uh, sharing your story. Um, and uh, I hope uh, you know as many people as possible get the, get the chance to hear it. And uh, so thank you for taking the time to talk today. Thank you, Cody. It was a lot of fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Weiji Ma. Like I said, if you're interested, you can check out more of his Growing Up in Science series on their website. I think that projects like Growing Up in Science, as well as this podcast, are incredibly important for dealing with imposter syndrome, like Weiji and I were talking about towards the end there. I think that this is actually an incredibly important problem because everyone, literally everyone, deals with it to some extent. 
And uh, though we know it's an issue for almost 100% of graduate students and really any level of, of, of scientist, it's not something that we as individuals, as departments, or as a field tend to do much about. At least historically, that's not the case. Um, and I think it's actually changing now in a very positive manner. Like we talked about, the problem is out there uh, in, in the open in a way that it never has been before. And perhaps the best way to deal with it is for individuals from all backgrounds and at all levels of career to share their personal stories. And platforms for doing that are becoming increasingly prevalent. There's another thing that I didn't mention with Weiji, uh, but which I think is one of the most effective strategies for dealing with the feeling uh, that you don't know what you're doing uh, and that your knowledge base isn't sufficient and uh, all that sort of stuff that goes along with imposter syndrome. And uh, that strategy is mentorship. So usually in science, uh, particularly as graduate students, we surround ourselves with people in places that we aspire to be. And uh, that future, those accomplishments, they're always on uh, the forefront of our mind. Uh, what we see is the road ahead of us, and it's, it looks incredibly treacherous, right? Uh, but, but what we rarely take the time to do is to see the amount of road which we've already traversed. Um, you know, to put it in maybe another metaphor, we see the steepness of the slope of the mountain we've yet to summit, and it looks so far away. Uh, but we almost never turn around and see the immense amount of elevation we've already covered. And uh, the easiest way to take that alternate perspective is to interact with someone who is lower than yourself. Quite simply, uh, they'll ask you questions for which you already have thought through the answer and be able to provide a significant amount of knowledge and insight into. Uh, in short, they will seem uh, sort of dumb compared to yourself. And, you know, I think that's actually extremely healthy when the majority of people you surround yourself with make you feel the opposite. And uh, you're always sort of aware of, of how much greater their knowledge base is than your own. So uh, in terms, uh, uh, yeah, and I guess in, in, in helping them grapple with the things that you've already worked through, you'll become aware of just how significant the terrain that you've come through is. Uh, and the amount of mountain that you've already climbed is, in fact, really, really quite big. Uh, so there's, there's, there's simply no opportunity to really dwell on that uh, the significance of your of your progress, unless you're working with someone below you, uh, and then of course mentorship is also worthwhile because you are helping someone, uh, and that helping someone is worthwhile is perhaps rather obvious. Um, th that is that it is you know one of the more effective means of increasing your own evaluation of your own intellectual worth is perhaps less obvious. So uh, I'd encourage you, whatever you do and whatever wherever you're at, uh, to go out of your way to engage with someone below you, a high schooler, an undergrad, a grad student, whoever makes sense, and you'll realize just how much you've gone through on your own way to where you are, and uh, this will give you a realistic evaluation of your progress along your own path in both directions. Uh, you'll still have a long way to go, but at least you will appreciate how far you've come. So thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cognitive Revolution. As always, if you enjoy the show or have an idea of how I can improve, then I'd love to hear from you. So you can email me at cody.commerce.writing uh, at gmail.com. You can also follow my newsletter, uh, which you can sign up for on my website 
It's called Friendship Friday and explores the psychology of making and sustaining friends as an adult, as well as uh, providing some practical tips along those lines. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week.